Welcome to Connecting the Community podcast. I am your host, Marge Andre. I will be connecting you to people, organizations, and events that create community. I am creating this podcast in Richmond Hill, an eclectic and very culturally diverse community with lots of trees and streams and interesting people just up the hill from Toronto. On this podcast, I will be talking with Nicole Coping-Pavars, who has just released a new book, Insights for Everyday Mindfulness. Nicole does live in Richmond Hill with her family, and she will have a book signing at the Richmond Hill Indigo Store on Saturday, January 20th from 1 to 4. Welcome, Nicole. Oh, thank you so much, Marge. It's an absolute honor and privilege to be with you. Thank you. I am so glad that we found the time to to have this conversation. Me too. Yeah. Now, we talked a while back about compassion. I'm part of Compassion York Region. Uh, You have created the Compassionate Integrative Process, which I want you to talk about uh, more later. But first, tell us a little about yourself. Um, You have an accent. Um, I do. I'm always surprised when people tell me that I do. Um, But yes, apparently I do. My accent is um, originally from South Africa, and we emigrated to Canada in 2001. So this really is my home, my country, uh, the place I want to be. Okay, very good. And you are um, a lawyer, you were practicing law in South Africa, and then you moved here. What happened there? Yeah, so um, I was a lawyer in South Africa, um, and I uh, was very young. I I became a lawyer very young, and um, I thought that I was going to change the world, and I was very naive and and, uh, gung-ho, and I thought I'd be this, you know, the, on the white horse saving saving the people um, and I realized it, it wasn't like that and I kind of felt that I had sold my soul to the devil at, at such a young age and so when we decided to emigrate um, I thought well this is perfect I uh, won't be a lawyer this is a new country I can go and do an entirely new career absolutely wonderful so off we came to Canada and within 18 months to two years of being in Canada, I realized that I really missed being a lawyer and I, um, I, that's what I really wanted to do. But I made a promise to myself that I was going to um, follow my heart and be a lawyer. I wanted to claim my soul back. And so that meant lawyering in the way that felt important to me and my value system and my moral compass. So I, with uh, two small kids under the age of three, I went back to uh, to convert my, my law degree. It was about a two-year process to convert my law degree and then um, do my bar admission exams and, and articles. Um, I did that and I just opened up my own law practice, didn't want to work for anybody. I knew exactly who I was, how I wanted to show up. Um, and I had a really successful law practice and up until 20, the end of 2021. So I closed my practice December 31st, 2021. Okay. You've written a book about mindfulness and meditation. So I still don't get how you went from law to mindfulness. Can you talk about that transition? Yeah, thank you. So around about 2016, um, I, on paper, I had everything. I had a successful law practice. I had a, a beautiful home on Ravine. I had three healthy children. I had a good marriage. I had everything. And yet I was still feeling 
depressed and a little bit, I can't say anxious, but just things just didn't feel right. And I felt like wherever I went, there was this dark shadow following me. Um, and I constantly felt guilty. So I felt guilty if I was at work because someone was watching my one-year-old learning how to, you know, how to um, walk. If I was at home, I felt guilty because I had clients that uh, I knew needed to be attended to. And I just had this constant tugging and pulling. So that was 2016. By then, my my, my youngest wasn't uh, wasn't a baby anymore. But um, I, I really went into this dark place. And um, I took a, a courageous, a vulnerable step. And I started admitting to some of my colleagues, hey, I'm, I'm feeling this way. Like, are you feeling this way? Is it normal? And so many of them said, Nicole, we feel the same way. We can just never escape being a lawyer. Even on holiday, we worried about our clients. We worried about what we're missing. We're worrying about the backlog that's going to come in. Um, it is a very stressful a profession. And um, a lot of us, a lot of them just weren't happy. And I said, there has to be, there has to be a better way. So I went to the Law Society and I went into their website to see the Law Society, our, our society that looks after us must have something if, if I'm not the only one feeling this way. And it took me about two hours. I went, I had to go into the belly of the Law Society website to find those random articles that say, you know, get plenty of sleep, go, you know, drink eight glasses of water, meditate. I'm going, this is not helpful. So I thought I'm going to go out there and I'm going to find a way to to find a, a problem, a solution to the problem. Um, now, I, I've always been spiritual. I've always, um, I was, had already been on my own transformational, personal self-development journey. I, I believe we always have to grow. We must never remain stagnant. Um, so I found a course that was a, a, a one-year course that was out in San Francisco, um, out of Berkeley University, and it was called Mindfulness in Law Teacher Training. Mm. So I did that, was revolutionary for me. It was a lifesaver, a game changer, and yet there was still something missing. I didn't really resonate too much with the, the teachings, um, the mindfulness teachings. I didn't even realize that there were different, there was Zen Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism and uh, all these different things. I didn't even know that there were all these different levels. Um, and then I found Theravada Buddhism and that really, really appealed to me. And um, I went uh, to two weeks to Thailand um, and I toured and met lots of monks and, and uh, learned from, from the monks up in Thailand and then decided to do a further year's certification um, through the school in Thailand um, and a monk in Thailand. And um, I then started, so 2018, I then did, I opened up Lotus Law, which was just my little side hustle. It kind of just jogged along my law practice, which was called NKP Law. And what I did was I, I did meditation Mondays with lawyers where we would just start Monday off in a meditation. Um, I did mindfulness classes. I talked about emotional intelligence. Um, and it wasn't, it was, if, if, Lawyers said, hey, are you doing a course? And we go, oh, okay. And I'd, I'd, I'd throw together a six-week course, but it was a side hustle. Um, but in 2021, I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. I felt my my purpose and why I was given these gifts, there was a reason for it. Mm -hmm. And for me, initially, that was to help bring mindfulness to the legal profession. 
Um, and then it went much broader and much bigger. Um, and that's really um, how I came to mindfulness was seeing that there was a real struggle um, in the legal profession. And I want to do, I wanted to be the change. Ooh, very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. One question I do have, though, is I'm hoping you can just talk a little bit more about what actually the training was. Like, I am like, what did you actually do? What did you study? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, so you want me to put two years into uh, yeah. <laughs> 35 seconds. Let's see if I can do that. So the Mindfulness in Law Teacher Training was um, – the, it, it, it obviously taught us about mindfulness. It taught us about meditation. It taught us about compassion and kindness. Um, but it also taught us how to approach lawyers because lawyers aren't really that keen on energy or consciousness. There are many, but for the most part, it's fact-based, science-based, it's logic-based, it's intellect-based. So it was how do you bring um, consciousness and mindfulness to lawyers who are trained to be pessimistic and perfectionistic? So how so a lot of it was was how to really understand the legal mind so that you could bring mindfulness to them um, and then how to start a practice, how to um, really communicate with lawyers in a way that they wouldn't think that you're some weirdo doing yoga and, and meditation. Um, and the one thing that uh, lawyers often, and not lawyers, actually most people think when you talk about mindfulness, they think it's meditation. So very often you'll say, oh, do you have a mindfulness practice? They go, ah, no, that's not for me. I tried meditation once. It didn't work. Um, and that's the key um definition is that mindfulness is not meditation. Meditation is just one tiny aspect that falls under the umbrella of, of mindfulness. Um, and so very often lawyers thought, I don't meditate, it's not for me. And, and the reason why a lot of people feel they can't meditate is that they think meditation is sitting quietly in the lotus position, um, not having thoughts and just feeling calm and zen. And Unless I don't, I don't know many people who can who can do that. But the other thing that we don't realize about meditation is that it's not cookie cutter. So we are all individual people, and each of us respond differently. So just like you may like pineapple but not strawberries, when you're meditating, your mind may like a breathing meditation and not a body um, a body meditation. So you have to really figure out what works for you. Because if you, um, for me initially, mantras didn't work for me because I already had so many thoughts and words in my head. Now asking me to add more thoughts and words into my head, it just got too confusing and overwhelming. And then I just would leave a meditation feeling overwhelmed. And I said, meditation didn't work for me. So it was, it's also in the, um, in the training that we did is really understanding all the different modalities. So you can coach somebody and say, try this meditation, try this meditation, tweak meditation. So it's really getting to understand mindfulness and meditation and how to really make sure that they fit hand in glove for the people that are in front of you. Woo, that's a good, very thorough explanation for that. Okay, so we've talked about lawyers and how they're, you know, they're a specific group, but on the other hand, they're not homogenous. Uh, you have, um, you do compassionate integrative process. So uh, what actually is that? 
oh, this is my passion project. So actually, when I was doing my mindfulness and law teacher training, one of the exercises they said is if you could do something that's really close to your heart, what would it be? And I had this like revelation sitting in in the yurt because we would sit in a yurt um, of uh, in my mind, I had this idea of a compassionate courtroom that if judges were trained in compassion, maybe the entire court system would change. And I wanted to start with judges because I really believe in the um, in the trickle-down effect in a hierarchical system. So for me, it was if judges were trained in mindfulness and kindness, then that would trickle down to the lawyers who are before them. And if the lawyers then understood what kindness and compassion was in law and in conflict, that would trickle down to their clients. If clients were then being role modeled by their lawyers about how to deal in conflict, that would trickle down to their children. And so I thought at some point we'd have this trickle down from the bottom, from the bottom, from the top down. And then if people were actually training their children in mindfulness and kindness and compassion, that would raise, rise up and eventually the two would meet. And so I thought we have to have a compassionate courtroom. So I had this idea of what would a compassionate courtroom look like. And I, I went to a judge. I told him this idea of, it was a whole bunch of different things that came with language, humanizing people in a courtroom, um, using words that people understand. The audience is your client, not a judge. So don't write orders that your clients aren't going to understand. And then, then they get, you know, they get uh, punished because they didn't understand the order that they have to adhere to. So really simplifying the whole process. And I spoke to a judge and he said to me at the time, it was just at the beginning of COVID. And he said to me, Nicole, what you've got is a phenomenal idea, but what you're asking is a federal issue. You want the, you want the, the country to create a courtroom that there's no money for that. Um, you know, money is going to housing and, and um, medical, uh, you have to create a process. Find a way that you put this into a process and the process can come into the courtroom. So um, that's what I did. And basically it's called the compassionate integration process. And the first thing I realized in family law is trauma is in every single nook and cranny. Um, and it's not just lawyers think that the trauma, their clients are traumatized or wounded in front of them, but lawyers don't realize that their own stories and their own biases and their own triggers and their own woundings very often come up on a client file and they don't realize that they are harming the clients matter because of their reaction to something. So for example, um, if um, a lawyer was the baby of the family, and they always felt as though they were treated like the baby of the family. Everyone was like, oh, you're just the baby. And they always felt like they had to do better than everybody else because they had to prove to everybody they're not the baby of the family. So, And they felt ignored. Now they're in a, in a meeting with, with another lawyer and whoever's there or in the courtroom or whoever, and they feel like they're being ignored. They feel like their message is not being understood. What happens is that little seven-year-old or five-year-old that in a child takes a steering wheel, takes control of the steering wheel in that moment and has a temper tantrum. And so the lawyer then becomes um, obstreperous, loud, um, doesn't want to listen to anybody else, not realizing that actually 
their little child, the inner child has taken over the situation. And if lawyers aren't aware that their own trauma is harming a client's file, it's adding to a, an already antagonistic system. So the first thing I knew is that we had to have not just awareness of trauma, we had to have the wisdom of trauma and how we can co-regulate not just ourselves, but the people that are with us in any room so that we can actually get to a place where emotion isn't um, taking over. And the problem with the law is that emotion is not allowed to come into the legal system. But the legal system is probably the place where emotion lives. It's your, it's people's lives. It's children. It's so how can you say, stick it away? It has to burble and gurgle over. So for me, the first thing about this compassionate integration system was integration, trauma, and compassion into the family law process, and then creating a hybrid of the best of every single process that is out there. Because what happens is if you're going through a separation, you have to choose a process and hope that it works for you. It's siloed. If it doesn't work, disenchanted, you then have to try the next thing. If that doesn't work, you then have to go to court and it gets, it, it gets really um, stressful and on finances, emotions, spiritually, physically, everything. So I've taken the best out of every single system and put it under one umbrella. So if you want to, some people need to go to court. They feel they need the security blanket of going before a judge. So this allows you to go into a courtroom but it's done in a way that a judge understands the process that, that you're using. So I take um, litigation, collaborative law, mediation, arbitration, and problem-solving courts. And I've created a hybrid process of all of them. Now, a problem-solving court, there are not many of them. And a problem-solving court is either a domestic violence or mental, uh, a mental uh, wellness court or health court or um, an addiction court. And why these problems of the courts are so um, important is they say you have to deal with the issue at the core of its issue. So you can't say to a man who bashes his wife around, if you bash your wife, or your, your, your wife again, you're going to go to jail because he is. Because there's something inside of him that has not been resolved. So you have to first resolve that issue and then find support so that they can feel supported so they are able to deal with the issue and resolve the issue and not feel punished by what essentially isn't their fault. And so I thought we need to put all of these things together and create one process. And so this, I've it's groundbreaking. It's never been done before. Um, I have the support of um, a, a senior court judge who's retired, who wants to do the same thing as I'm doing. Um, and it's just groundbreaking. And I'm, I'm just so excited that it's, 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 the training is happening and um, yeah. we're going to change the legal landscape and bring compassion and kindness into the legal system. Wow, is all I can say. Is that, that that's absolutely amazing? I hope, so hope that you are so successful. Now, it, it sounds sort of like restorative justice. That I've, that's a term I've heard before, but mm. it sounds like it's more than that. Am I correct? Bang on. So, restorative justice is is part of it. Um, so, restorative justice is the forgiveness aspect. Um, and so forgiveness is, uh, is, is forgiveness is, is part of, of trauma. 
Um, you either forgive yourself, you forgive the person. So it definitely has elements of restorative justice. I'm so I'm so impressed by you, Marge. Yes, it definitely has elements of restorative justice within the process. Okay, we could talk a lot more about this, and I find it fascinating. But I really want to talk about your book. So, yes. um, okay, what I, I, what propelled you to write the book? Because that's it's different than what you've just talked about. This integrative compassionate process or compassionate yeah. integrative process. There's it's a little more that it's a book. So describe your book. What compelled you to write a book? So it actually started when um, I was giving my mindfulness classes. And what I what I actually did is I would do lawyers on Wednesday nights and I would do people who weren't lawyers on Tuesday nights. And um, and I realized how differently lawyers think. I was teaching the exact same thing, but their issues were always work-related, whereas people who weren't lawyers, their issues were life-related. And um, what all my students would come to me and they would say, Nicole, because it would be a six-week course once a week. And a lot of them came and said, we sometimes aren't able to remember everything you said week by week. Is this somehow that you can help us, that we could do something in between classes, like some kind of resource. So what I did is I actually started off with a deck of cards. So um, it's 52 cards uh, and I I created them. I, I made them like, they look like a regular deck of cards. And I said to my, my students, so I took 52 teachings or parables or anecdotes or mindfulness quotes that were um, relatable in what I was teaching. And I combined them and I said to my clients, here's a deck of cards. Choose one card a week and that card will be your lesson for the week. And that will help you um, sort of get from, from one week to the next. And so they came to and they said, this is wonderful. This is fantastic. We actually do it daily. We're not doing it week by week. But sometimes we don't understand the lesson. It just seems too cryptic for us when we just pick out a card. So that propelled me to write a book. So I then took all the 52 cards uh, that I had created and I compiled them into a book where I have the uh, the lesson, the, the saying or the anecdote on one page. And then I have the lesson on the other page. There could be a connection between the, the lesson and uh, how they could, how they could actually bring that forward um, in their own life day by day or week by week, however they wanted to do it. Okay, so I, I am interested to see this book. I It's just hot off the press. Uh, now, you've got the book where it's got a, a preface where you outline your sort of theory, and then you do have 52 pages, like double-sided pages. Mm -hmm. And I saw you flipping through the book when you were doing your some social media post. So is there a lot of white space? Do you... What is the white space to have people reflect or to write notes? Why did it, it's a different design for a book? Yeah, that's such a great question. And you've, I never actually thought about it until you raised that as a question. Um, for me, I, I know as a lawyer, um, I want information quickly. So if I want to, if I have to read something or I'm looking for something, I want it to be quick and easy. If it's too long, I might put it aside for when I've got time. So I wanted this book to be very quick and easy where literally within 30 seconds, you could read it and you could get the message and you could do whatever you needed. So I wanted there to be, I wanted to look clean and clear um, and 
just just clean that you could go oh yeah this lesson looks looks very quick and i can do it so the white space isn't really there for reflection or writing it really was it could just be a quick and clean lesson that you could grab it in 30 seconds okay okay i like that that format for things you also have said that um the, it, it, you can start where you want to. It's not like one after another. So you just, whatever sort of compelled you, spoke to you, you you would um, uh, focus on for that week. Uh, and you also, uh, in the Amazon write-up of the book, it talked about how it was a self-help book, but it's not like many self-help books where there's like a prescription, you do this, you write, and then you do that, then you do that. So it's it is a different type of self-help book, correct? Yeah. So mindfulness is about reflection. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not for me to tell you what to do. Um, The lesson is there. And maybe you don't even agree with my interpretation of the lesson, but it's about reflection. So it's when you, and that's what meditation is about as well. It's just reflection. So it's really just about, um, you know, I can, if, if you were stuck in a, in a horrible, yucky cell and I came to you and I said, Marge, here's a key, but you have to listen to me. You have to put the key in the door. You have to turn it. Once you hear a click, take the handle and, and, you know, push the handle down, push the door open, you'll be free. You might get so excited that I gave you this key that you can have freedom. Okay. And so you're going to put this on the wall. You're going to get so excited. You look at it. It's wonderful, but you've forgotten the rules or the steps that I took you, uh, that I, I gave you for your freedom. So if I saw you again and you would say, your, your key doesn't work, it sits there doing nothing. And I'd say, no, Marge, you have to listen to me. You have to stick it in the door. You have to turn, you have to click. I go through the whole thing again. Um, maybe that time you would actually listen to what I'm saying and then you would actually realize, oh, it wasn't up to Nicole telling me what to do. It was up to me taking those lessons and doing it for myself. And so that's what this book is about. Ooh, I like your example. Very, very good. Okay. Uh, am I am interested in the whole process for writing the book. Like you've got young kids running around. Uh, did you go off to Costa Rica for uh, six months to write the book? No. Okay. No. Um, it took about a year, um, about six months to a year just to um, perfect, mm-hmm. uh, but it was actually, it actually came together very, very quickly mm-hmm. uh, because um, I love anytime I get inspired by a quote, I take note of it to this day. I like, I could write another 17 books because I'm constantly, if something inspires me. So it really, I already had all of these um, lessons and, and, and quotes and, and everything. So it was just a matter of um, putting them in, you know, finding, a lesson that I thought would resonate with my students. Okay. Okay. And uh, you had a publisher. How did all that work with them? How did you get the book published? Is it self-published? It was self-published because it was only meant to be for my students. Okay. So if you did classes with me, you got a book. And then it just, I went to Amazon and, and it got published to Amazon. And then I went, you know, Indigo, went to Indigo and and they said, we'll, we'll you know, take it on in our store. They liked it. So um that that's that's what it was simple and easy as that okay i think you have an easy you have had an easier job of publishing your books than i've heard from other people so you i I see you as lucky it was meant to be okay uh is there anything else that you wanted to add nicole for me marge all i want you know all i want 
in this world because I really believe in a world where kindness and compassion are greater than fear and hatred. And for me, if there's one way that we can be in that world and that world can be a world that we can exist in, it's be kind. Mm. And that's, that's how I want to show up every single day. Very good. Very nice. Okay. I do end all the podcasts asking the same question of all the guests. Please name one thing you really like about this community. So easy. It's a compassionate community and it's multicultural and it's accepting. Very good. Okay. Thank you very much for that. I will add the links to the book in the podcast notes and your website as well. So thank you, Nicole, for taking the time to do this podcast. Thank you, Marge. Thank you for listening. I would very much appreciate you sharing this podcast. Please tune in next week as we continue to explore the community. Consider emailing me at Marge, M-A-R-J, at MargeAndre.com. I welcome suggestions for podcast guests. Stay well, stay connected.